2: Hello and welcome to History of the Netherlands. It is that time of year again where we are coming up with excuses. This time they're somewhat legit. Due to a combination of getting COVID, having broken computers and going on summer holidays, we will not be able to get another episode of History of the Netherlands out until the end of July. Yes, I can hear your boos from here. You can throw your tomatoes at us now. Luckily for us though, we have been making podcasts for ages and have quite a large back catalogue. Many of you will be well aware of this and we understand that your tomatoes at this point will be the most rotten. But we have also picked up a lot more listeners lately and we're sure that many of you will not have heard this before. Our first foray into podcasting was in January 2017 in the form of a show called Stuff What You Tell Me. This show focused on the role of revolt and rebellion in history. We made a series of episodes for that podcast called The Unfortunate Voyage of the Batavia. These episodes recount the wild and infamous story of the Dutch East India Company ship Batavia. In 1628, it sailed from the Netherlands towards Indonesia with approximately 20% of the Dutch East India Company's capital on board. However, it would never arrive as mutiny, shipwreck, and murderous tragedy all swirled together to make this one of the most bizarre and horrific tales to come out of the era of maritime discovery. This is one of our favourite pieces of work that we ever made, and we've definitely told listeners in the past to go and listen to it, but we've never actually put it up on the history of the Netherlands feed, and now. Well, it feels like the right time to do so. There are nine episodes in total, which mean that we will put up two a week so that you and the algorithms which control our lives do not forget that we exist. The style and the music on these episodes are different, but you will notice that the voice is the same, albeit possibly somewhat less worn than these days. So... We hope you enjoy this, and of course, feel free to check out the other stories we told in our Stuff What You Tell Me catalogue, which you can find on our website, republicofamsterdamradio.com. We'll have a new episode of History of the Netherlands as soon as possible. But for now, the unfortunate voyage of the Batavia. Think about these smells. Cinnamon. Nutmeg. Cloves. It's like the early stages of making a curry. But yeah, get these smells in your mind, so to speak. Okay, now throw in the smell of tobacco. Not the smell of cigarette smoke, but the smell of fresh cut and uncut tobacco. If you're not certain about this, ask a university student the next time you see one if you can smell their pouch. Provided, of course, that's not too weird a question. Stuff it. Throw in the cigarette smoke scent as well. So you've got all of these smells, blended together nicely. There are so many others we can put in, but for brevity's sake, we'll add just one more. Probably the most important and the most domineering amidst this whole delicious blend. It's like the primer or the base scent upon which all others are impressed. It's the smell of shit. Just putrid, unadulterated, dense, and overbearing wafts of waste. The smell of tens of thousands of humans living amidst each other and amidst tens of thousands of animals in a close urban proximity, not washing that often, and with nothing like a modern sewerage system. These tens of thousands of smelly people live in a city that is interwoven with canals, Many kilometres of stagnant, disgusting canal water, filled with the effluence of the city's living beings. So yeah, that smell of shit you were imagining, you can probably double or even triple it in intensity. If you'd been living at the time, I suppose, you would have been accustomed to it. But for us, if we went back to this time, safe to say, we would be constantly retching from the stench. But really, before we begin this series' amazing story of resistance and rebellion, it's worth paying homage to the sense and the sensory elements of the past. As we weave our way through this tale, we're going to try something a bit different. We'll keep in mind the sensory elements that so often get lost in the conveying and the understanding of history, the sights, the smells, the noises, and the feelings that were a part of everyday life. I also want to give thanks to modern sewerage and hygiene, and to the fact that we are lucky enough to live in a time where we can more easily know what cinnamon smells like when it is not blended against the overbearing odour of excrement. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This is our second series, The Unfortunate Voyage of the Batavia. Episode 1, A Sense of the Past this episode is brought to you by noses. The Romans had them Roman all over their faces. <laughs> so, what period and place are we talking about? Well, the year is 1628, and that city I mentioned, with all those stinking canals and smelly people. That city is Amsterdam. Actually, the rebellion at the core of our story will take place pretty much on the other side of the world, thousands of miles from this bustling and great commercial city. But it is here that we must begin. In the previous 40 years, Amsterdam's population had expanded threefold. At this time, over 100,000 people now called the harbour town their home. Its meteoric rise had many and complex causes, but there are a few main ones that we need to talk about, just to set the context of this tale. Amsterdam, by this stage, was the capital city of a self proclaimed new country, the seven United Provinces of the Netherlands. In our last series on Martin Luther, we spoke about the Holy Roman Empire, and how in the temporal realm its administration had been divided into imperial circles. The whole of what was considered the Netherlands, which included roughly today's Netherlands, Belgium, and, believe it or not, Luxembourg, they were all actually within what was called the Duchy of Burgundy. So when I talk of the Netherlands at this point, I am including Belgium. I'm sorry, Belgians. I know it hurts. But it won't last long, as you well know. All of this was a part of the Burgundian imperial circle within the Holy Roman Empire. The Duke of Burgundy from 1506 until his abdication in 1555 was a guy that we met in the last series, a pretty important fella actually. He was Charles V, the emperor who had sat in judgment over Luther at the Diet of Worms. Charles had been born in Ghent in Belgium, which is a great town that everybody should visit and drink lots of delicious beer in. His inheritance was bloody hefty. His titles included not only the Holy Roman Emperor and Duke of Burgundy, but also the King of the Romans, King of Italy, Archduke of Austria, King of Spain, and Lord of the Netherlands. Pretty good resume. During all of Charles' reign as Emperor, he was dealing with a world in tumult, thrown into chaos by Luther and other reformers, as well as some of the socio-political upheaval That we touched upon in the Luther series. I reckon Charles comes off pretty well in history, or at least that he handled all of this with reasonable ability. Although ardently Catholic, in 1555 he showed enough reason and sensibility to allow for the peace of Augsburg to come into accord. This established that individual rulers of states in his empire could independently choose between Lutheranism and Roman Catholicism and enforce that religion amongst their subjects. Importantly, though, another form of Protestantism that will become more important to us, Calvinism, was still a heresy within this accord. This was not a perfect accord, and neither was he a perfect ruler. But who is? At least he didn't go around burning too many heretics and waging too many religious wars. In fact, he was often too engaged in his kingdom of Spain, a world superpower by now, to put too much into fighting the Reformation. That's yet another reason why he did not enforce the persecution of Luther, even though he was Luther's emperor. Anyway, later on in the same year as the Peace of Augsburg, Charles abdicated his throne and titles. He had been pretty exceptional, managing to rule such a massive realm at such a weird time for over 30 years. His empire had stretched from the Black Sea to the Atlantic, undergone the biggest social changes in a millennia, and he had kept it together. Well done, Charlie boy. The question he now faced, however, was what would happen to his empire after his reign had ended. He mustn't have known anyone, of legitimacy anyway, who could have done as well as he had. So, he split his territories and his rule into two. He gave his son Philip, the western half, Spain, parts of Italy, and Burgundy, and he ensured that his brother Ferdinand ascended to the throne of the eastern part, the Holy Roman Empire itself. Philip would become Philip II, King of Spain, Felipe I, King of Portugal and the Algaves, briefly the King of England and Ireland, and, importantly to us in our story, the Duke of Burgundy and the Lord of the Netherlands. He was super Catholic, usually depicted posthumously as being a little bit weird, but more contemporaneously as handsome and graceful and quite intelligent. He was the king who would send the doomed Spanish armada against Queen Elizabeth I's Protestant Britain. Philip's rule was one of peaks and troughs, or should I say, a peak and many troughs. He oversaw the climax of Spanish global dominance, his empire reaching across the expanding globe. In Spanish, he is known as Philip the Prudent, Despite this, however, he also ruled over five occurrences of state bankruptcy and the rapid decline of Spanish influence on the world stage. The main thing for us, though, is that it was against the perceived oppressive Catholic rule of Philip II that Calvinist Dutch nobles began a rebellion for Dutch independence in the 1560s that would last for 80 years. In itself, it's a great story of rebellion and struggle for freedom. But it is not our story today, so I shall tell it as succinctly as possible. When the Dutch Revolt began, the Netherlands was a conglomeration of entities within a duchy ruled over by a Spaniard. By the 1580s, they had united together and were calling themselves the United Provinces of the Netherlands. By the 1620s, when our story really begins, it was the richest country on earth and on its way to becoming a country making more money than every other European country combined, which would be the case come the 1660s. So how did this incredible transformation occur? The Spanish had boots on the ground all over the Netherlands since the uprising began in the 1560s, and remember, the Netherlands includes Belgium and Luxembourg at this time. Multiple cities were razed and whole town populations were massacred over a period of time known as the Spanish Fury. Sometimes, sacking cities was a deliberate part of the Spanish military strategy. At other times, however, it was the result of unpaid Spanish soldiers revolting against their king, such as in 1576, when a garrison of such soldiers sacked Antwerp and killed thousands of inhabitants in an effort to recoup money owed to them. That's right, Philip, who oversaw bankruptcy five times, sometimes neglected to pay his soldiers as well. Antwerp had been the wealthiest and biggest trading city in Northern Europe, and arguably the world's first truly global commercial city. It had a very large mercantile population, many of whom were Sephardic Jews, Jews from the Iberian Peninsula who had fled the Spanish Inquisition. Many of their parents and grandparents had been what were referred to as Murano Jews, but today more politically correctly called Crypto-Jews. These were the Jewish populations of Spain and Portugal who, in the 1400s, had ostensibly converted to Catholicism, under threat of their lives by the Spanish Inquisition. They had remained secretly Jewish, thus Crypto-Judaism, and many had fled to Antwerp when it had become the main distributor of Portuguese goods in the early to mid-1500s. With business contacts around the world and expertise in luxury goods such as diamonds and tobacco, the Jewish merchant population was a demographic of Antwerp that teemed in knowledge, capital, and business acumen. Many of Antwerp's merchants were also Calvinists and other Protestants. Many would have been pro-Dutch freedom and anti-King of Spain. So when Antwerp was occupied for a second time in 1585, All these Jewish and Protestant merchants had reason to fear for their lives once again. The Spanish, though, were much kinder to Antwerp and her people in 1585 than they had been in 1576. They gave anyone who was not Catholic two years to get their affairs in order and leave the city. Suddenly, though, you had a large group of wealthy, experienced, and knowledgeable merchants who now needed a new home. In the north, seven of the rebellious Dutch provinces seemed to be holding out and even turning the tide against the Spanish in this war for freedom. The Dutch are natural seafarers, and their rebel navy, known as de Hozen, put a naval blockade on Antwerp. So now this great commercial city had lost both her trade and her merchants. In seeking a new home, all these merchants fleeing the Spanish, they saw the way the wind was blowing, and they headed north. Many of them headed to Amsterdam. So this is how Amsterdam overtook Antwerp as the great trading city of the north. Thus began a period that, already from 1616, became known as the Golden Age. Amsterdam had turned from a middle-level and somewhat provincial but successful fishing town, into the wealthiest city that had ever existed. Suddenly, this was a place of opportunity. Europe had begun to cast off the feudalism of the Middle Ages. The United Provinces and Amsterdam saw some of the first effects of this change, and a society began to grow in possession of an idea that someone could make something of themselves if they were canny and lucky enough no matter the position or status of their birth. This actually became a reality for many. Many more, of course, would come crashing to the ground whilst chasing the dream. But we'll get to those people. The unfortunate voyage of the Batavia will continue after this short break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
2: In 1628, when our story truly begins, Europe was still shaking from Luther and the Reformation. In fact, the shakes had become heaves of history. Europe had been tearing itself apart for the last 10 years in a conflict that still had nearly 20 years to go. The Thirty Years' War, which was mainly but not exclusively around Germany, was already devastating towns, villages, homes, and families. They were all being torn apart. A whole generation of people now had nothing else to lose. And a lot of them came to the United Provinces with hope of a new start, a fresh opportunity. The Dutch, and Amsterdam in particular, started to gain a reputation for tolerance. It was the capital city of a self-proclaimed Calvinist republic. It was still fighting for true and officially recognized independence. But Spain had been unable to capitalize on the resumption of hostilities after a 12 year truce, in which the United Provinces had crippled them economically and suddenly become a world superpower. In the Young Republic, there was a total revamp of the traditional European authority structure. The two most established authorities of the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church and monarchical rulers, either did not exist as Catholicism was now illegal or were not in charge, as the country was ruled by a Republican parliament known as the State's General, and not by a royal family. If you take away authority, you take away censorship. Suddenly there was a freedom in this new republic that did not exist anywhere else on the continent, and so great and out-there thinkers like Rene Descartes and John Locke came to call the United Provinces their home and published some of their most groundbreaking work here. This was possible because there was no need to fear reprisal from those traditional authorities. Baruch de Spinoza, often said to be the first self-identified atheist in Western Europe, was born and grew up in Amsterdam at this time. It was generally a more progressive place, as business was the order of the day. And really, who cares from whence or from whom the money comes? I don't want to give the false impression that there was no authority or censorship or concepts of what was and wasn't heretical or dangerous ideology. There was. But just like today, the rules were just a little bit looser in Amsterdam and the United Provinces. No harm, no foul. If you keep your ideas to yourself, nobody is going to come looking for them. So it was also a place where pretty strange and, at the time, heretical ideas were able to be fostered, safe in the minds of people keeping their mouths shut about them. That is going to matter to us and to this story. So this was a happening, pumping city, going where no city had gone before. But it still smelled like shit and cinnamon. So keep that in mind, and let's take ourselves there and explore the city Just a little bit more. We arrive in Amsterdam in the way everybody does. By ship. Coming into the great harbour in the city's north, there are a startling amount of trading ships in dock. Boats are everywhere, carrying goods to and fro. Our ship moors in the harbour, joining the forest of masts, swaying in the strong breeze that manages to blow the stench away for just a moment. We get onto our little scout boat and set off under a bridge and onto one of the canals that run into the city centre. At this time, the city is undertaking a massive urban project, the construction of three ring canals to run down the western edge of the city, north to south. Countless workers pull on ropes, lifting massive rocks in machines to ram huge wooden piles into the muddy ground. The crash of their hammering and the echoes of the workers' shouts are carried across town by the gusting wind. We are here for a job, like everybody else. Perhaps getting work on this massive urban project is something we could think about. We'll see how our first appointment goes, because as we head into the city, we are heading for a very important place. Our boat takes us to a new market square on the east side of the city. It is dominated by a large castle looking building, which had been one of the old toll houses. Now, by 1628, the powerful guilds have set up their headquarters in various pointy towers that rise up along the building. Our little boat pulls up along the side of the canal. There's a muddy track barely wide enough for a horse cart to fit down. Everywhere there are people, horses, dogs, cats, rats. Countless boats drudge through the thick layer of oily scum on the water's surface. They are packed with boxes and sacks of goods that are being lifted here and there, being run to and fro. Shouting comes from all directions as people barter, bargain, and haggle. Big brick warehouses line the canals, some of them leaning ominously forward over the muddy tracks. All the odorous things we spoke about at the start Cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, and other spices like pepper, cardamom, coriander, their scents all abound. We get a whiff of tobacco as a shipment floats past us, plus much else. Wood, gunpowder, grain. All of the warehouses lining all of the canals are packed with these and many other goods. Massive quantities of everything imaginable are being bought and sold, sometimes even before they've been unpacked and stored. It's enough to make you scratch your head in disbelief. Or maybe that's just the lice, because, by the way, everybody has lice. We jump off our boat amidst the hubbub and we push our way through the people scurrying everywhere on their way to the next profit margin. We make our way past the toll house and through the market square There are vendors shouting prices and wares, buyers, people standing around or drinking at one of the taverns or inns that are lining the whole market. A woman winks at us. What a friendly gesture. Or is she too offering a particular service? We are not interested. Not now, anyway. Because we have an important meeting to get to with very important people. We need a job. It seems that the whole world has come here looking for something. People of all different colours and ethnicities, men in turbans speaking to each other in who knows what language. One of them points out some camels that are tethered up down one of the winding side alleys. We bump into a young man, knocking the contents of his arms to the ground. He glares up at us, contempt in his eyes. He picks up some brushes and a palette straightens himself out, gives a final glance which seems to penetrate to the soul, and walks away in a huff. Like everyone else, he's here today on business, making contacts. That guy is a young artist called Rembrandt Harmenszoon van Rijn, come from his hometown of Leiden with aspirations to one day move here and make a name for himself. So this is the city we've been walking through. This smelly, busy metropolis of trade and flourishing art. We've nearly reached our destination now. You can see it. A huge, dominating, red brick building rising up the other side of the canal that we have been walking down. We pass some fishmongers with their little eel smokers set up outside. People standing around, pulling the flesh from the spine. Another scent, by the way, that we can add to... Our olfactory blend. Bloody fish guts. Everywhere. We cross a bridge and walk into the great building before us. It is only about 25 years old and the red brick shines brightly. There are multiple throngs of people walking in and out of the building. Once inside, there is an organised chaos of people going in all directions. We walk over to someone looking somewhat official. A clerk with a nice hat. We tell him, we are there for a job. And he hastily points us over to a line of fairly bedraggled looking men. We join the queue. What is this place? Where are we? Well, we are standing in the inner sanctum of Dutch commerce. This is the main headquarters of the wealthiest company to ever exist. The Verenigte Oostindische indische Just breaking out of character for one moment, I never want to have to say that again. So, for the rest of this podcast, we are going to refer to this company by its initials as the VOC. Anyway, let's get back into it. Like everyone else scratching themselves in this line of misery, we are looking for opportunity. And the best way to find opportunity, the most available option for Europeans to find employment And a chance for something new is to get a job with the VOC. They are the kings of the trade game, and they are going to give us an assignment. When we finally get to the end of the line, another clerk meets us briefly. He is sitting at a desk, but we remain standing. The clerk takes our name and writes it on a contract, which is for five years. He asks us our religion, to which we say Calvinist and whether we have any debt, to which we say, no. He pushes a paper in front of us, points to a spot, and tells us to make our mark. This, we do. We are now a sailor for the VOC. Our assignment, we are told, leaves in three days. It is on the newest and largest ship in the company's fleet, and it will be sailing as part of a fleet to a faraway island named Java. Our chance of ever making it back to the Low Countries is pretty slim, because unbeknownst to us, this voyage that we have just signed up for will host one of the strangest stories of rebellion to ever occur. It is a story of such savagery, ignominy, and near incomprehensibility that it will still shock people listening to it almost four centuries later. We are getting on a ship called The Batavia. There are a few ways to look at the rebellion that is about to happen, and several important characters that we will meet along the way. By doing so, hopefully we can gain an insight into the nature of authority and the resistance to it, and explore how these structures are established and conveyed. If we're lucky, by putting ourselves in the shoes of this sailor, we'll understand better what it was like to be a part of this world and this story. At the very least, we'll be thankful that we're just using our imagination, and aren't really stuck on a foul-smelling ship in the middle of the Indian Ocean in the late 1620s. Ostensibly, this rebellion will be against the authority of the VOC. In the next episode, we are going to take a look at the organisation itself, how it changed the way that money was made, and how it all largely happened in the name of better-tasting food. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. This podcast has been produced by Julian Smith and Joe Wagasani. The music you can hear is the song Fork in the Road by the band Detroit Rebellion. Big thanks to them for letting us use it. For detailed show notes with more information, pictures, videos and links to interesting reading, check out our website at www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com. Feel free to like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash stuff what you tell me and follow us on Twitter at the stuff you team. You are also always welcome to support the podcast by following our link to Patreon, which is up on the website. If you thought the podcast was worth a listen, please recommend it to your friends, family or any other history nerds, you know, and if you didn't, well, stuff you.